This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Stable, maker of America's number one fuel stabilizer treatment, and a growing number of exceptional products that make it easy to keep the vehicles that we depend on for our adventures running the way they're supposed to. That's what the start of a great day on the water sounds like for my family. If you're like me, you've known Stable as something you put in your fuel system to keep it fresh year-round. Even if you haven't fired up your motor since last summer. The brand has been around for over 60 years, and it is recommended by over 100 OEM manufacturers. So for those of us who like to travel and play on unbeaten paths, we can trust that Stable will keep our engines humming. If you own an off-road vehicle, or an RV, or ATV, you probably know that your fuel system can get gummed up, causing the kinds of problems that ruin trips. Using Stable protects you from those disasters, and it also makes your engine more powerful and more efficient. Today, the Stable lineup includes Fast Fix to revive engines that are running rough or not at all, Rust Stopper to prevent corrosion and stop squeaks and sticking, and 360 Marine, formulated specifically for boats and watercraft motors. It's everything you need to make sure you can get where you want to go. Go Learn more at stableradio.com. That's S T A B I L radio.com. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. In case you missed it, there was some big news in the outdoor world recently. In March, Outside Magazine became part of a much larger company that includes leading titles like Backpacker, Ski, Climbing, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, and many others. Our new parent company has taken on our name, Outside. And in the months ahead, we're going to be combining forces on a number of ambitious projects that we are incredibly excited about. Meanwhile, we have already begun to collaborate. In that spirit, today, I want to introduce you to a podcast produced by the talented team at Backpacker. It's called Out Alive, and it offers powerful stories about people surviving what should be unsurvivable scenarios in wild places. This, of course, is a kind of storytelling we do on this show all the time. And one of the most difficult aspects of the work can be approaching people who've been through hell and asking them if they're ready to talk about it. So I was really curious to hear what this has been like for Luisa Albanese, the lead producer and host of Out Alive. How does it feel on your end to approach those people and ask them to share their story? And, and you know, is there a common reaction or is it always a little bit different? Oh, wow. Um, it is terrifying every time. I always feel stressed and nervous when I ask someone to share something so so personal and pretty much the worst day of their life. Um, and I'm always so amazed and grateful and excited when people, and a little surprised, when people say yes, that they are consenting to be interviewed. 
when I ask people, it is a huge amount of um, faith they're putting in me to tell their story. And so I try to be really respectful of that. Mm -hmm. Having talked to all these people and actually having had them share all these crazy stories with you, is there something that you've learned or sort of some of the big takeaways from hearing people talk about these incredibly difficult and scary moments? Yeah, um, something that we hear over and over again is that the person in this story made a conscious choice to survive no matter what regardless of the odds or what was happening they just said yeah i'm gonna live um and that's something that really i've noticed as a common theme of people who maybe medically should have died and didn't And the other thing that I've really noticed is that these experiences affect people on a wide spectrum. And it seems like there's an evolution that goes on for decades after these incidents occur. And that people who are typically up for being interviewed land in the camp of feeling that they have a sense of gratitude for this experience and they feel that sharing their story might help somebody else and also helps them on their journey to healing if you will so it really feels like a privilege to have the opportunity to hear and learn from these stories and i really try to have a sense of reverence and humility when we're making this show it's intense Yeah. Do you have your own thoughts about what it is that makes us want to hear these gnarly wilderness survival tales? I think even though intellectually we understand the statistics, right, that the likelihood of being attacked by a grizzly bear is 1 in 2.7 million, or I think a snake bite is 1 in 50 million of dying from a snake bite, but our reptilian brain can't help but say, But what if it's me? And there is this inherent risk with all these outdoor activities we love, but we're pretty bad at judging that risk against the risk of something like driving in our car. So we overestimate the risk of these rare occurrences. And I think if you love the outdoors, you're kind of using this as a case study of what you should do if you find yourself in this survival situation Mm -hmm. so you think it's people putting themselves in the shoes of the people you're telling the stories about on the show i think it's probably two camps either you're satisfying your morbid curiosity of wanting to hear what it's like to have experienced something or you are taking notes storing away information trying to kind of hope that you will be able to outsmart death as well I've been listening to Out Alive since it launched a couple years ago. So far, my favorite story was a two-part chronicle of a frightening tragedy on the Appalachian Trail, in which the usual dangers we expect in the wilderness, like bears and snakes and crazy weather, were replaced by a far more menacing threat, a human. Today, I'm thrilled to share the entire story with you here. When you're done listening, I encourage you to follow Out Alive, which just launched a new season and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Three million people hike along the Appalachian Trail each year, thousands of whom attempt a through hike all the way from Georgia to Maine. 
In the spring of 2019, Kirby Morrill was one of those through hikers. So I grew up in the middle of nowhere in New Brunswick. You know, there's more cows and people in the community I grew up in. So before I left on the Appalachian Trail, I'd never been backpacking a day in my life. I, I have no problem with the woods, totally cool with it. I've always wanted to do Mount Katahdin. It's about a three hour drive from Fredericton, which is the capital city in New Brunswick. Everyone in New Brunswick does Katahdin at some point. My dad did it when I was a kid and I thought that was so cool. So at some point I was gonna climb Katahdin. And then I started actually reading about it when I was in university and found out it was the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. But one of the difficulties of deciding to hike the Appalachian Trail is finding the opportunity. November 2018, I defended my master's thesis and I wasn't attached to anything. So I had the time. And regardless of not having the money, I had to make this happen somehow. Booked a plane ticket one way to Georgia and figured I'd walk home. Like many through hikers, Kirby hit the trail solo, knowing she'd meet people to walk and camp with along the way. I was really nervous when I left that I wouldn't be able to make it because I'm going to say the number one reason why people leave the trail is mental. I figured if I could make it past the first few weeks, then this was legit. The start of my trail was really good and I was really enjoying it. I was a little worried about, um, there's something called the Virginia Blues. A full quarter of the trail is in the state of Virginia. So you go for quarter of the distance without any major milestones, without anything to like congratulate yourself about or any real photos to take other than like some of the sites. But there's no state lines and there's just a lot of walking and it wears people out. So. I was a little worried about the Virginia Blues, but I figured, eh, I made it this far and I'm okay with it. It's fine. And then I didn't actually make it that far. By this point in the hiking season, everyone in the trail community had heard of a hiker named James Jordan. Like many through hikers, he went by trail name Sovereign. But Jordan wasn't like other through hikers. My name is Odie and I'm I've spent a few years on the Appalachian Trail during the main hiking seasons, doing trail support, being out there for and with the hikers. And this year started out different with hearing about James Jordan. Stories grew very quickly from him. He was just kind of scaring tons of hikers. He was just doing things that were not normal, like um, the shelters along the trail, you would hike for a day and then you'd stop at a shelter and several people would stop at these shelters for the night and he would get to a shelter and just be like, this is my shelter, everyone get out, everyone get, you know, just really uncomfortable and very violent feeling. Though the AT covers over 2,000 miles, news on the trail travels fast. Hiker chatter spreads by word of mouth and through online community forums like The Truck and Gut Hook. Reports popped up of Jordan threatening groups of hikers with a knife. He became notorious for the guitar strapped to his pack and the dog he hiked with. Here's Alex Hill, another through hiker. You could tell that he wasn't the obvious hiker. Like, you know, this person is not balanced. One freezing cold evening, Alex and his hiking partner Meg hiked up to a shelter to find Jordan inside brandishing a large knife. 
he's holding this knife like in my direction saying that I can't stay in the shelter. And I'm just like, all right, man. So we kind of back up and I'm thinking like, I've got to put up my tent in this like crazy weather because this psycho won't share the shelter. Like I didn't know exactly how to handle it. I mean, he was basically threatening me and the weather outside of the shelter is life threatening. A handful of other hikers came along, and Alex watched in horror as Jordan threatened a 17-year-old solo hiker with a shovel. The weather was brutal, so Alex and Meg welcomed her into their tent to keep warm for the night. snowed pretty much all night, but we were pretty grateful for that because we thought that he would be less likely to, to leave the shelter if, if the weather stayed inclement. But throughout the night, he was yelling profanities, kind of just like out into the air. He was saying, do you want to fucking die? That was, that was pretty much one of the few sort of things that he was yelling we understood. At 5.30 the next morning, Alex and the others packed up and hiked to a road where they got a shuttle to a hostel. So we all end up there and we, we called the police like as a group and we told the cops like what happened. And they said that they were already trying to find him because of an altercation that happened at a different hostel. I gave them my contact information. I said I would press charges. I took somebody's contact information and had to call them just to get an update of what was happening um, because Meg and I didn't really feel comfortable going back on the trail without knowing that he'd been picked up. So we ended up staying at the hostel like for two days. And so that's where he's being held in jail at Irwin. You know, I have my phone on me and like I check it every night, the messages and stuff. There was no contact from anybody to see whether or not we would have stayed to press charges. So this guy gets arrested and taken to Irwin and then gets released. And he gets right back out on the trail. Here's Odie again. It was very quickly that we started hearing stories again that he was definitely still on trail and still scaring hikers in different ways. So I believe another week went by after his first arrest and he was arrested a second time. Once again, he was released, and um, I saw on social media that James Jordan was actually in Roan Mountain, Tennessee. So I wasn't far from there, an hour or so away. Odie decided to take matters into his own hands. So he tracked down James Jordan and pretending he didn't recognize him, offered to buy the hiker and his dog lunch. I could tell that he wasn't the same as, you know, most people in this world. And I could I could see a lot of anger in him and, and it was scary talking to him. He told me just strange things like when you set your tent up at night, be sure to put dental cloths around your tent. That way they'll fall down when they try to come get you. Just talked about how you always have to be on guard and that he had a stance of fear. But I began to try to talk him into just going home. Like, hey, you've already hiked 130 miles of the Appalachian Trail. That's incredible. Maybe you want to go see your parents or, or family members and let them know, like, what you've done. Like, that's great. Like, where's home for you? And he told me about his brother being up north 
And I said, uh, I said, hey, why don't you go go see your brother? I'll buy you a bus ticket. You know, you want to go see your brother? I'll I'll get you to the bus station and buy you a bus ticket. The best I could think to do was just send him to his family. So Odie bought Jordan a ticket for the next day. At the time of departure, he called the station where an attendant confirmed that the hiker and his dog had boarded the bus. So I took a huge sigh of relief and posted on social media that he had gotten on the bus and and left the trail. Just prayed that he would, you know, find a better way. But um, not totally sure on what happened, but I know that he didn't take that bus all the way home because he ended up back on the trail. Kirby, like everyone else, had heard about James Jordan. One day, she stopped at a restaurant called The Barn alongside the trail in Atkins, Virginia for lunch. I had a great lunch and I was working on my trail journal, had it all updated, and I glanced out the window at some point and I saw a guy with a like really old school pack and a big old bedroll on the top of it and a guitar attached to the back of it, along with a really playful pup just dancing around him. And I looked and I was like, guitar and a dog. Holy crap. That's the guy. And I Googled it really quick just to make sure because you never know. And then having confirmed that it was the guy who threatened people in Tennessee, I wrote a quick note in the logbook at the restaurant because there's there's a lot of places that keep logbooks so they can track which hikers came through and it's kind of a keepsake. So I made a note in the logbook. I figured as a fast hiker, my best bet might be if he's going to stay on the trail, I should try and get past him. And I know he's right ahead of me right now. So I'll get past him. I'll hike beyond him, wake up early tomorrow, keep hiking, then I'll never see him again. And it'll be fine. So I hiked on. I came up behind him and I gave a big like, hello, I'm hiking a little faster than you. Do you mind if I go past you? I was like, oh yeah, sure. And he was really friendly and we chatted for a bit and I kept trying to hike faster to get beyond him. And he kept trying to talk to me as I was hiking away. He had some very strange things to say. He told me his dog's name. I can't remember. His dog had two names, though. One of them was her name, and the other one was her slave name. He told me what his name was, which, like, we all go by trail names out there. So he told me what his trail name was. But then after that, he told me that his government name was James. After that, I hiked on past him. And it was getting late in the day, though. The sun was starting to set, and the next shelter was about nine miles beyond where I was. Lots of people enjoy night hiking. I don't. So I decided, okay, I will hike that distance if there's no one else at this campsite. But if there are other people at this campsite, then I'll stop. Because the other thing I figured is, according to what I had heard, James Jordan, uh, he didn't have a tent was my understanding. And it was supposed to rain that night. And so I figured his best bet was probably to keep on going to the shelter. And so I might actually be just fine to stay at the campsite. I rolled up to the campsite and I found Gina and Jay and Ron. Ron Sanchez had started his through hike early in the season He was an army vet and was using his hike as his own brand of therapy. 
a little bit about, you know, a little bit about Ronnie. Um, he joined the service 1995 all the way up to 2010. This is Dan Duncan, Ron Sanchez's father. Served our country three times over in Iraq, Kosovo. Had some issues when he came home, and he was working through those issues. Uh, and one of the ways was being outdoors. Ronnie always loved to be outdoors. He was an outdoors guy. He picked up backpacking, hiking. And so the day came when he decided he was going to start his his journey, this Appalachian Trail trip. His fiance took him to Georgia, dropped him off there, and he started walking the trail. Ron Kim Cross is just really straightforward, really nice guy. This is Colin Gooder, owner of Gooder Grove Adventure Hostel in Franklin, North Carolina. We had Ron Sanchez come in, I think it was January 31st when he showed up. And uh, the weather had been pretty bad with some snow up in the higher elevations. His knees were, were starting to uh, give him a hard time. So we were, we were talking and, and he was thinking about quitting and getting off the trail and going home because of his knees and he was really down about it. And, uh, and I found out you know, he was a veteran and, and his experience in the military had left him troubled. So I wanted to help him, and so I, I offered to let him work you know, a few hours a day in exchange for his stay. He was a great shoulder for people to rely on and lean on. I can't emphasize enough like, how good of a man Ron was. Kirby and Ron had met a few days prior and had a friendly rapport. They'd been leapfrogging each other for a couple of days, passing each other on the trail, and staying at the same hostels. Gina and Jay, a couple from New Jersey, were new faces. They too had taken to the trail to heal from trauma in their lives. Jay and I had hiked about, I don't know, 15, 16 miles that day. And we came up to a campsite and Ron was there. He was the only one camped there. And there was something about Ron that I was really drawn to. And our original plan was to go to the second tent site. And when Ron was there, I don't know why. He was just very I just welcoming. Turned to Jay and, you know, I we asked, I think like we asked him, you know, hey, is it cool if we pitch our tent here? And we pitched our tent. We were talking. We were talking about the military, his time in the military, why he was on trail. He came off as a really genuine, really genuine dude. And he had some struggles with PTSD, and that's why he was out on the trail trying to heal from them. And we kind of bonded on that because we're on the trail trying to heal from, from our own stuff. It was just peaceful. It was the three of us hanging out and... Kirby showed up, asked us, you know, if there was room for one more, to which I I vividly remember saying, of course. And she let us know that James had been behind her. I remember turning to Jay and just saying, like, what the hell? Like, I thought, you know, everybody thought he was off trail at that point.
And so he rolls up to the campsite and he's friendly enough and, I don't know, just got more intense, I guess I'll say, as the evening went on. He just was definitely becoming more irritable. And I, at, at one point I was setting up my uh, sleeping bag on top of my sleeping mat and he came up uncomfortably close behind me and was peeking into my tent. I said, hey, what, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just having a look at your setup in here. I said, I, I'm sorry, but that makes me a little uncomfortable. And then he just stops deadpan, stops smiling and says, you know what makes me uncomfortable? Getting punched in the face. He just was making me uncomfortable enough that I wasn't going to eat dinner. So before I hung my food bag, I actually took a couple Snicker bars out and I just took them into my tent and I figured I'd eat a couple Snickers and then deal with real hunger in the morning. So I only ended up eating half of one of those because I was trying desperately not to make any noise. I did not want him to know that I was moving around. I did not want him to remember that I existed. Everyone but James Jordan retreated to their tents and pretended to sleep. He threatened to kill us and he told us why we deserved to die and threatened to pour gasoline on the tents and light us up and no one would ever know. Clearly no one was sleeping. I had nothing but adrenaline in my system and there was no way I was going to spend the night there. But as the night went on, he kept retreating further and further back into the woods and was quiet for long periods of time and it sounded like maybe there would be an opportunity, an opportunity to leave. So we packed up. I could hear Gina and Jay wrestling. So I, I figured they were packing up. I heard Jordan come out of the woods. There was a brief encounter between him and Gina and Jay and then running. So Kirby and Ron grabbed their packs and set off down the trail together. Ron and I both had headlamps. And then Jordan, who did not have a headlamp, I don't know if he found us by our lights or if he was just managed to follow the trail in the dark on his own. But he just came down the trail and next thing we know, he's right in front of us in our headlamp lights. At no point previously in the night had I actually seen him holding a knife. But when he approached us coming down the trail, he was already holding it in his hand. For a moment, I want you to imagine your next big adventure. Maybe it's an epic road trip in your tricked out van. Or perhaps it's overlanding to a remote spot where you set up a base camp for fishing or climbing. Or I have this one friend who's always talking about taking his boat to a secret spot on the coast of an area I'm not allowed to talk about so that he can surf waves that are impossible to access from shore. Any of those journeys sound amazing to me after what's been a long, long year of way too much time at home. But here's the thing. All of these trips also depend on your vehicle running the way you expect it to. And unfortunately, that's often not the case. Today's fuels tend to gum up your fuel system, leading to all kinds of issues, sometimes at the worst possible moments. The answer to this challenge are the exceptional fuel treatments and vehicle protectants made by Stable. 
trusted for decades to keep your motor humming even if you haven't run it in months, Stable now makes a broad array of products to handle the kind of problems that can destroy an adventure before you get out of your driveway. Start your ATV or dirt bike for the first time after it's been in storage and it might die or run rough. But add Stable Fast Fix to the gas tank and it'll eat through the buildup that's been sitting in your system, allowing the engine to run as it was designed. Then there's Stable Rust Stopper, which does everything from loosening joints on your suspension to undercoating your truck in the winter to fend off rust caused by salt on the roads. Learn more about these and other stable products that will make sure you can pull off your next big trip as planned at StableRadio.com. That's S-T-A-B-I-L Radio.com. It was the middle of the night on May 11, 2019. Appalachian Trail through hikers Kirby Morrill and Ron Sanchez were leaving their campsite in Wythe County, Virginia, where allegedly they and two others, Gina and Jay, had been threatened by another hiker named James Jordan. The four later described Jordan to the FBI as acting disturbed and unstable. Miles from the nearest road, they packed up their gear and, in hopes of shaking Jordan, began to walk. I heard Jordan come out of the woods. There was a brief encounter between him and Gina and Jay, and then running. So Ron and I both had headlamps, and we were walking, I think, side by side. And so we're chatting like, this is insane. Like, I want to get out of here. This is crazy. I can't believe this is happening. And then Jordan, who did not have a headlamp, I I don't know if he found us by our lights or if he was just managed to follow the trail in the dark on his own. But he just came down the trail and next thing we know, he's right in front of us in our headlamp lights. At no point previously in the night had I actually seen him holding a knife. But when he approached us coming down the trail, he was already holding it in his hand. He told us at that point that someone had tried to kill him in the woods. Someone had tried to bash him over the head with a rock, he said. And then he accused Ron of it having been him. And then he attacked Ron and then attacked me. His body collided with mine. We fell backwards and I was fully turtled. I was pinned to the ground. I like to think of myself as being a pretty strong woman. And I think I think all of us have these scenarios where, oh man, if I get attacked in the woods, this is what I would do. But I was just pinned by a man with a knife. Literally a horror movie. But I guess if you're going to get stabbed, I definitely got stabbed the right way because he stabbed me a lot, but it was all in my limbs. Your body puts you into shock and I was chock full of adrenaline. And so when he was beating my head, I honestly had no idea if I was already dead or not. I had no idea. So I held my breath and I held still and eventually he stopped and he got up and In the scuffle, I had turned off my headlamp and he did not have one. So he could not see me in the dark. And then after standing over me for what felt like bloody forever, he left and he went back into the woods and he started calling for his dog. 
There's still a lot we don't know about this night. The four hikers who Jordan allegedly attacked declined to be interviewed in detail about the actual attack since the case is still ongoing, but we do have access to some court documents. The following is an excerpt from the affidavit in support of the U.S. District Court criminal complaint in the United States of America versus James L. Jordan. In this document, Hiker 1 and Hiker 2 are Gina and Jay. Victim 1 is Ron Sanchez, and Victim 2 is Kirby. The following is a description of the attack, read verbatim, from the affidavit. All four hikers decided to pack and leave the campsite due to fear of Jordan. As they tried to leave the campsite, Jordan approached them with a knife. Hiker 1 and Hiker 2 ran, and Jordan gave chase. Jordan returned to the campsite and approached Victim 1 and Victim 2 again and began verbally arguing with Victim 1. Victim 2 watched as Jordan began stabbing Victim 1 in the upper part of the body. Victim 2 watched Victim 1 fall to the ground, at which point she ran. Victim 2 began to tire, at which point Jordan caught up with her. She turned to face Jordan and raised her arms as if to surrender when Jordan began stabbing her and she received multiple stab wounds. Victim 2 fell to the ground and played dead, at which point Jordan left to find his dog. So I was left on the ground with no glasses, no headlamp, nothing. I need my glasses. I am blind as a bat. And I waited until I could hear him some distance away before I moved at all. And I undid my pack. I rolled over, got on my hands and knees. I could feel the blood pouring off of my head. Sat there for a second. And I was okay. So then I pushed off the ground and I got up onto my feet. My right arm wasn't functional. My left arm wasn't doing great. And my left leg was clearly not very functional, but I could stand and I could hobble. Kirby understood that she needed to get out of the woods fast. She knew Ron was close by, but had no idea what condition he was in. Turning on her headlamp would only give away her location to Jordan. Her best chance for herself and for Ron was to find a road or some other hikers and call for help. So I figured the best thing I could do is just get out of there as fast as I could and get him the help he needed because I couldn't be that help because I could barely walk myself. There's no way I could have gotten both of us out on one leg. And so, in complete darkness, she found the faint imprint of the trail and followed it south. I took a few steps down the trail and immediately realized when I stepped off the trail that I would not make it very far without a light. So I stopped and I started feeling around in the dark, keeping in mind that every time I couldn't hear Jordan in the woods, I would stop and just like lay down. Because if he came back this way, I wanted him to find me dead like he left me. And so I felt around on the ground looking for my headlamp and I just, I couldn't find it. And I, I actually sat back and took three deep breaths and thought about my options. Cause I'm like, the last thing I need to do right now is rush it and screw this up. And so 
I took my three deep breaths and remembered that I was wearing my fanny pack. And in my fanny pack, along with a variety of necessities that I would always want on my person, if something bad happened, I had my lighter. So I pulled out my lighter and I stood up and I started to try to go down the trail by the light of my lighter. I held it close to the ground and I looked around. I found my glasses first and then I found my headlamp and I turned on the red light crept as quietly as I could over the next hill and as soon as I was far enough away that I was sure he couldn't see me or hear me I turned on my white light and I ran and I ran as far as I could as fast as I could which was not very fast because I was limping pretty hard. The previous afternoon Kirby had passed two hikers setting up camp a few miles away. Her guess was that if she continued hiking south she'd eventually reach them likely asleep in their tent. I had passed those two people earlier in the day before I encountered Jordan the first time, and they were camped out just on the northern side, so the near side of a road. So I'd passed by a road, then I'd passed by those two campers, then I'd gone up over two little mountains, and then I had camped. So I knew I had to get up over those two little mountains, and then I'd encounter those campers. And those campers surely would have a cell phone and could call some emergency help. Because at that point, I was trying to go as fast as I could because I figured the best bet for Ron was for me to get someone in to help him. My thigh was just giving out on every step. And so uphill sucked. Downhill was worse, though, because it was giving out on me. So I had to be careful and kind of crab walk down. As the threat of James Jordan receded further and further behind Kirby, the danger of walking through the woods at night still loomed near. Limping around a bend, Kirby caught the shine of an animal's eyes in the beam of her headlamp, bears. She called out to them and hobbled along. One mile passed, then three, then five. And then I I did come across as campers, two very nice people, and I am incredibly guilty about how I woke them up. That cannot have been pleasant, but they were incredibly helpful and kind and had cell phones, called the authorities and helped me out of the woods the rest of the way to the road. I think it was from where they had camped. It was another mile to that road. So shambled out to the road from there. And the woman had gotten out to the road and was on her phone again, I think, at that point. And I don't know, within three maximum five minutes of reaching that road, a cop car came along. Kirby was loaded into an ambulance and driven to an open space where a helicopter could land. Helicopter took me to the hospital. Police officer met me in the emergency room and took my statement while the uh, surgeon was stapling me up. The surgeon is the one who said I had nine stab wounds, so that's the number I keep quoting. Nine stab wounds and then lacerations everywhere. I think it was... 50-some staples and then 10 sutures across my face. I kind of had myself absolutely convinced that what was going to happen is they would knock me out and then I'd wake up and everything would be fine. A little after 6.14 a.m. on May 11, 2019, the Wythe County Sheriff Tactical Team entered the campsite where, according to Kirby, the attack began officers found James Jordan in the woods and took him into custody. There was blood on his clothing. Ron Sanchez was found and pronounced dead at the location of the attack. 
This is Ron's father, Dan Duncan. I know that, you know, he, he loved life. He loved life and life was taken from him for no reason other than pure evil. And you can put that down definitely because that is a fact. He loved life. He was looking forward to spending time, you know, continue hiking. Uh, Ronnie had good things to offer. He was kind to people. He would help anybody, anybody that was in need. He would. He didn't care who. If you needed help, he was going to help you. The news of the attack and Ron's death shook the thru-hiking community up and down the trail. Hikers banded together to support one another and to remember one of their own. Here's Colin Gooder, owner of Gooder Grove Adventure Hostel in Franklin, North Carolina, where Ron spent a few weeks. I would hope people would come away from it, seeing the grace and the beauty in this man who had served in the military. He was a soldier. He signed up to sacrifice his life if necessary for other people. And he ended up in a really bad situation in which he stepped up without any obligation to try and, and succeed in saving other people's lives. And I just hope that, you know, we we keep honoring him and remembering him for that, you know, in the years to come. He was a great shoulder for people to rely on and lean on. I can't emphasize enough how good of a man Ron was. As grief coursed along the Appalachian Trail, so did the shock of such a tragedy for those who had interacted with Jordan over the previous months. The news that he had apparently murdered someone was stunning. I, I had so many regrets. Here again is Odie Norman, who tried to get Jordan off the trail by buying him a bus ticket home. Maybe I should have taken him to an ER. Maybe I should have called the cops. Maybe I shouldn't have done anything at all. But when they said James Jordan had committed murder on the Appalachian Trail, it struck the core of the community. And I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. Ron Sanchez was a 16-year combat engineer veteran. He had hiked 500 miles. He was strong. He was smart. So a lot of people may say if this ever happened to me in the woods, I would I would fight or I would stand my ground. Or Ron Sanchez was probably one of the most physically capable individuals. And I'm sure that the actions of that night were him being that hero that he is. He served our nation. <laughs> And I don't know what happened that night, but I know that I know that he was protecting everyone else there. That's what he would have done. It was unimaginable, the terror of that night. I felt devastated and angry. This is Alex Hill. 
one of the six hikers that reported Jordan to the police after a threatening encounter in Tennessee, where Jordan was initially arrested. A lot of people knew that this guy was dangerous. I was just angry that more people didn't do more to stop it. Relative to walking in a city, trails are safe. So how did something like this happen? Two to three million people visit the Appalachian Trail annually. And with that much foot traffic, there is bound to be a bad element. In the last 50 years, the AT has seen about a dozen murders. But statistically, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy puts the chance of being killed on the trail at one in 20 million far lower than even the safest city on Earth. But there's still that bad element, and in 2019, it was heading northbound. He was known by law enforcement officials to be both mentally ill and violent. So then how was he able to kill? Why was no one able to stop him? Law enforcement on the AT is complicated. The trail crosses 14 states and uncounted towns, counties, national forests, national parks, state parks, and so on, creating a patchwork of law enforcement jurisdictions. Most of the time, hikers can police themselves. But when they can't, it's not always obvious who to call. We spoke to both the Appalachian Trail Conservancy and the National Park Service. As a national scenic trail, the AT falls under the Park Service. And both organizations said they were made aware of Jordan and the disturbances he was causing on the trail around the time he was arrested on April 21st in Tennessee. It's unclear why Jordan was released by Unicoi County in the first place. Sheriff Hensley is quoted in numerous articles saying the hikers who reported Jordan were unwilling to stay off the trail to press charges and testify, which forced the department to release him. But remember Alex Hill, one of those very hikers whom we just heard from? He refutes the sheriff's version of the story. We called the police like as a group and we told the cops like what happened and they said that they were already trying to find him because of like an altercation that happened at a different hostel. One of them was taking notes. I don't know how much he wrote down. Like I gave them my contact information like verbally. I took somebody's contact information and had to call them just to get like an update of what was happening um, because Meg and I didn't really feel comfortable going back on the trail without knowing that he'd been picked up. Um, so we ended up staying at the hostel like for two days. So then we hike out of Irwin. And so that's where he's being held in jail at Irwin. I have my phone on me and like I check it every night, the messages and stuff. Like, no, there was no contact from anybody to see whether or not we would have stayed to press charges. Perhaps the most disturbing contradiction of the sheriff's claims comes from Ron Sanchez's father, Dan Duncan. The law enforcement had him, you know, twice, two, three times. They could have taken him. And, and you know what their decision 
The reason was the last time, this is, and this is straight from the sheriff of Unicoi County, Tennessee. He, he, these are his words, not mine. He could not afford to spare the manpower it would take to take this person two hours away to a facility to where they could hold him. He couldn't, he couldn't spare two hours one way, four hours total to get this person off the streets and into a, a place where he could be evaluated. We tried to contact Michael Hensley, the Unicoi County Sheriff, to comment on what Alex Hill and Dan Duncan said, but his office did not respond to our request for an interview. On May 13th of 2019, Jordan was read the charges against him. Murder, an assault with the intent to commit murder, and a motion was made to have his competency and sanity evaluated. In July of 2019, Jordan was found incompetent to stand trial and sent to a federal mental health facility for rehabilitation. As of April of 2020, he has not been indicted or entered a plea. We spoke with law expert Stephen Morrison of Georgetown University to try and understand what this means for the future of this case. If the defendant is believed to be incompetent to stand trial at any point in the criminal justice process, the process must immediately stop. In other words, he's not able to understand what's going on legally. Now, I'm not talking about having the knowledge of a lawyer or even a highly educated layperson. But having sort of a basic understanding of what a criminal prosecution is, what a judge is, what a trial is, what a prosecutor is, etc. So one criterion is the defendant has got to be able to understand proceedings and the charges. Second thing, the defendant has got to be able rationally to assist counsel. I don't know of good national data on this, that the vast majority of people who are evaluated are found competent because even though people may have pretty severe cognitive or emotional problems, what we want is to give people their day in court. So the standard for actually finding those two criteria I gave you for competence, the ability to understand what's going on and the ability to rationally assist counsel, I mean, it's pretty easy to be found competent. I just wanna make sure that if and when this goes to trial, he gets put away because he's dangerous and he needs to be put away. Despite everything that has happened, all of the survivors of the attack maintain they feel in general the trail is a safe place. Here's Jay and his wife, Gina, who were camping with Ron and Kirby the night of the attack and escaped to safety. We were definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it just, the stars kind of align that way. But I, th- I really think the trail is very, very safe. I feel more at risk in town than on the trail, even after what has happened. I'm more likely to die driving down the highway than I am to die in the woods hiking a trail, realistically. The trek.co has done statistics on this to check how safe the trail is compared to major cities. And the trail is very safe, statistically. If there's anything to be learned from this story, it's that despite the drama, the trail heals. Ron Sanchez, like so many others, turned to the AT to work through his own personal struggles. 
While he didn't get to finish his journey, Ron's strength and resilience endures in the thru-hiking community. He left behind Kirby, Gina, and Jay, who all plan to return to the Appalachian Trail one day to reclaim the miles and finish what they started. Here's Gina. I refuse, I don't care what happens. We are finishing, we are going to Katahdin. And I think I was just in such shock in the days following. And then finally, when we weren't with like the FBI or the police anymore, I finally had time to kind of like come down from the adrenaline of it all. And so that's when the reality kind of started to hit. The healing process has really not ended. It's just kind of in like a holding pattern. And we really need to get closure to all of this. And Katahdin is where that's going to happen. My first thought in the hospital in the States was like, geez, how long is it going to be before I can get back on the trail? It's been months of physiotherapy. There's no way I could have kept hiking, but I was all the way thinking about my return. Her thru-hike was abruptly over, but Kirby wasn't ready to part ways with the trail just yet. She returned home to rest and heal, but in a few months, some friends of hers would be finishing their hikes atop Mount Katahdin. Kirby made a vow to meet them there. I went down and I climbed Katahdin with them, which was really great. They were really considerate because I didn't have full use of my right hand. Climbing that mountain, there's some parts where it's actually, it's just basically bouldering. And there's some parts where they've kindly put in rebar to help you get a grip. So made my way up the mountain. Got ever so slightly emotional at the top, but I try not to be too overly sentimental. So knowing that I was able to climb Katahdin in that state, I was like, sweet. I'm going to be fine to do the trail next year. I don't know. I think it's mostly just frustration because I didn't dream of finishing the entire trail eventually. I dreamed of finishing the entire trail from start to finish, and I didn't get to. I wanted to be a thru-hiker, so that's what I'm going to do. Come hell or high water. Due to the outbreak of COVID-19, Kirby's plans, along with Gina and Jay's, to thru-hike in 2020 have been put on hold. But she hasn't given up the goal yet. Kirby will dedicate her next thru-hike attempt, whenever it may be, to the memory of Ron Sanchez. I get to try again, and he doesn't. And I just think it's appropriate. I think it's appropriate to dedicate my hike to him. and. I'm not spiritual or religious in any way, but I I just think it's important to make sure that in a way his hike does get completed and I think I'm the one to do that. That was Tragedy on the Appalachian Trail from the Out Alive podcast. On April 22nd, 2021, a US district court judge found James Jordan not guilty of murder by reason of insanity. As part of a plea bargain, Jordan admitted to killing Ron Sanchez and attacking Kirby Morrell. The judge ordered Jordan to be committed until he no longer poses a substantial risk. This episode was produced by Luisa Albanese and Zoe Gates. The story editor and sound designer was Andrew Mayers. 
Assistant story editor is Tim Massa. Casey Lyons was the script writer. The episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel of Electric Audio, Inc. You can follow the new season of Out Alive now, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Stable, maker of America's number one fuel stabilizer treatment and a growing number of exceptional products that make it easy to keep the vehicles that we depend on for our adventures running the way they're supposed to. Learn more at StableRadio.com. That's S-T-A-B-I-L-Radio.com.